0: What's up, everyone, this is Andre Zito. Welcome to yet another new episode of the localization podcast. This will be the first episode since I got vaccinated. But in the ordinary world, we can refer to this one as episode number 42. For this one, I had the pleasure of speaking for more than two hours, pretty much my standard right now. Uh, to Zachary Heitkin, currently working as a localization project manager for Netflix. With Zach, we took a slightly different approach, although we originally wanted to, again, discuss one central team, which we thought would be data, and the data processing data, which data are important for localization. But in the end, it's more of a personal story of sack and how he got from being a bartender and driving Lyft and Uber to eventually leading and driving the localization at Lyft and now working at Netflix. Now a few of the highlights from part one that you're going to hear very soon, how to convince your managers to start even thinking about localization and then eventually give you budget. Maybe you don't know that but you're going to find out in this part one lift was originally built and designed to be an app to be used only in one country, with one currency and with one language. And Zach has something to do with lift eventually being localized into more languages. The important part of getting your message across is making sure that your stakeholders understand why localization is key to growth and understanding the user you are localizing for you're going to hear Zach's thoughts on this in this part one. Now finally, once we are ready to launch, you want to make sure that the localization and the new language that you added actually has an impact on the company. And Zach is going to tell you how to test this impact and evaluate it. And finally, you're going to hear some of the localization data that you should pay attention to and that you should gather. Before we get into the episode with Zach, let me thank everyone who has recently joined the LinkedIn page for our podcast. And there's been quite a lot of people recently. Thank you. Thank you all for that. Let me start with the first half and then I'll leave the second half for part two. So starting with Yulia Zubkova, Dominika Lasek, Aiten Saliskan, Laila Baez, Pradeep Neupane, Ahmed Anabi, Alp Gürl, Rehab Soliman, Fatma El Mahdi, Maria Stasimioti, Niklas Hisinger, Ahmed El Miliki, and Alumbres, Alumbres Libor Shafar, That's the only name I can pronounce confidently. Kirill Soloviev, Azul Basi, Viane Viane Baldrama, and finally we have Serkan Birkan. Birken. Thank you all for joining the localization page. As we started, we will continue posting all the microclips on the page as well. So I have all the podcast content in one place. And it's not just spread across my personal profile. And I think I've been talking for quite a long time. Finally, I'll shut up. And I'll just be asking questions during my interview with Zach. This is the localization podcast episode number 42 part one. Zach. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Where are you located? Let's start with that.
1: I'm currently in San Francisco, California. Um, I've been here for the last 10 years, but I grew up in Southern California in, in Los Angeles County. So, I've spent my whole life in, uh, in, in California, grew up in Southern California, went to college way up in Northern California, almost to Oregon in Humboldt County, and then now settled here in the Bay Area uh, for the last decade.
0: What did you study?
1: I studied Spanish language. Okay and international studies with an emphasis in latin america um i'm not a, a native speaker of spanish but i am fluent in spanish so um
0: fluent fluent in tequila
1: <laughs> very fluent in tequila <laughs> too too fluent um but uh yeah it wasn't the first thing i studied in college Out of high school i studied business because i don't know business right mm-hmm.
0: money yeah
1: uh money right yeah so i i i and the thing is i I, I didn't care at all um, and actually didn't do very well in college at all um, had to, had to leave a couple of times because I wasn't interested in what I was studying. Then finally, when I realized that I could study Spanish, it was something that I was good at and hadn't really thought about doing it as a as a career or or as a a, um, a major, i I went back to school and what do you know? Um, everything went smoothly the rest of the way. So yeah, um, I studied Spanish.
0: So, that sort of leads to localization, but I know that you didn't start in localization right away, right?
1: No, no. Um, out of college, I uh, actually – in in high school and a little bit after high school, I had done – the only work experience for the most part I had was in, res- in restaurants and catering. So, I um, – which actually I was able to use a decent amount of Spanish um in the in the back there there's definitely quite a bit of spanish being spoken um but uh yeah after i graduated i i uh, went to work at a at a bar as a as a, a bar manager or a uh, bartender worked my way up to bar manager and wasn't really sure what what to do um and then the lift came along um and I started driving because uh and i know if you're in if you're in vancouver you just got Lyft not too long ago.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw the billboards everywhere. But but let me pause right here because before we go into Lyft, why did you start as a bartender? Like, didn't you think of like pursuing career in what you just graduated from?
1: Yeah, you know, I um, I, I thought about being a translator, um, but I didn't really know the right people or the right avenues to go down, and to be honest i I wasn't really super driven to like start my career uh, after after college I really didn't know what to do a little bit lost um, still trying to f- figure things out at the time so you know I, I probably could have dug in and really done some work there but uh you know i actually i didn't even think about localization i didn't I know this sounds strange, but I didn't know localization was like a thing like i underst- I understood that companies offered their services or their website or their content in other languages. But that to me just was was translation. I didn't really understand what the localization industry was at the time. So I think I was more just uh, trying to, to make some money, try and get on my feet. Um, and then after, after that, then try and figure things out. But uh, yeah, no, I, I was more just for lack of a better word lazy (laughs) and wasn't wasn't trying to get off the ground just yet so i I went back to what i knew and that's why i I went into the the restaurant industry
0: okay so lyft you started driving yes how do you go from a driver to a localization manager
1: (laughs) that is all right buckle up okay (laughs) it's uh no pun intended um so while i was working as a as a bar manager uh bartender bar manager i started driving uh, on the side uh, and this was very early this was probably mid 2013 late 2013 and a friend of mine uh was telling me that you know you got to you got to get on this it's like a taxi but it's not you get this giant pink fuzzy mustache you put it on the front of your car and you make $45 an hour picking people up and i'm like what Are- all right, I'll 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 give it a shot.
0: Was it a startup at that time?
1: It was. It was. Um, when I started driving uh, in mid-July 2013, um, there were probably at headquarters, I don't know for sure, but I'd say maybe less than 100 people probably working. It had just launched as a service in August of 2012. So it was less than a year old. They were only operating in half dozen markets mm-hmm. um, in the U.S., so it was still very, very small. And so I would, I, I would, uh, I'd finish my shift at the bar. I'd hop in the car and I'd go out and drive and, and pick people up. Um, so one night I was driving late and picked up someone who was a Lyft employee, a support team manager at the time. He and I had a good conversation. He's like, "Hey, man, you seem like a normal person. Do you, do you want to?" Do you want to come work for us? Do you want to... They were having a recruiting event for their support team at the time. And he invited me to that uh, recruiting event. And just like that. And now he didn't offer me the job on the spot. But he offered me an invitation to the event where they were hiring people like crazy because they were seeing some pretty amazing growth at the time. And so, yeah, I I interviewed uh, a couple of times and and got the job as an entry-level support associate. What, what,
0: can you even remember like what was your discussion when you were driving that guy? Like, what were you talking about?
1: Um, so he was my neighbor at the time. Um, so I remember picking him up somewhere downtown, um, at a bar and driving him home, which was only a few blocks from my house. And so that was kind of the first thing we started talking about, but um, it was. At the time, it was much more... How do I put this? It was... People were fist bumping and it was very like cool and avant-garde to, to be in this lift. It was like better than a taxi and there was like real people. And so, you know, I, I think the conversation was just like, what do you do? Like, what are you into? Like, what do you like? And, and so, it was very much like your friend with a car, which was one of Lyft's slogans very early on. So I think it was one of those things where um we just had had that conversation of just like here's what I do, and then I asked him, you know, what do you do? And inevitably, Lyft came up, and and that's why I think you know my my skills as uh, being in the restaurant industry, being a bartender, you, you know, you want to talk to the bartender, like you wanna you want to have that conversation. So I was a pretty good conversationalist, uh, and that's I was was able to endear myself enough to to be able to to get the invitation uh to the event
0: i usually i mean not usually but you know like you see the questions like the first part is like like hey let's get practical let's talk about localization and then let's talk about your personal life but since we're already talking about is it, like i don't know I'll figure out something in the post editing or maybe i'll just release it at once but you know i i also had one friend who worked as a bartender and then he worked at global me like a smaller agency where he was working as a project manager on data collection. Mm-hmm. And so he told me that that yes, like a lot of the people come to bar just to talk to the bartender. Yeah. So do you think like these these skills of communication and like making people feel comfortable and opening up to you? Is that something that you developed during the bartending? Or did you have like these good social skills before?
1: I think I had some of it in the uh, before. Um, you know, coming into it, I definitely am somewhat outgoing. Definitely like to have a conversation with people, but having so many uh conversations while working at the bar, I think I was I was uh, I had a lot of practice. All right. And and if you think about it, what are what are two professions that you talk to? You talk to the bartender and you talk to the taxi driver, right? Um, and so it was kind of a, an interesting transition going from bar to taxi, more or less, uh, you know, lift driver. So I think those skills just transferred right over. And, you know, it, like at, at the end of the day, you know, I ended up giving almost 4,000 lift rides Um, by the time I finished, I don't have a car anymore. It's in San Francisco. You don't really need a car. So I got rid of my car a few years ago, but by the, uh, by the end of it, you know, I'd given four thousand rides, and so I I'd picked up at least four thousand people. Actually, a lot more than that. You know, if there were two or three people that got in the car, so I definitely had plenty of time to to practice uh, those those conversation skills.
0: Okay, let, let's tie it back to back to Lyft. So you went to the to the recruiting fair. You had the interviews. You were hired, but you were not hired as a Anything to do with localization, right? Because at that time, they didn't know anything about localization.
1: That's right. Um, the way I like to put it, Lyft was originally built for one language, one country, one currency, um, which had its advantages, um, certainly allowed Lyft to grow really quickly because there wasn't a lot of um, attention being paid to that, which was fine you know, for the time being. Um, so being in the United States... They definitely grew a lot faster for a significant period of time than Uber um, here in the United States. Then eventually, um, I think either late 2017 or 2018, I can't remember, um, Lyft launched in Toronto as the first Canadian city. Um, And so that was a lot of the work that was done to solve the country and the currency issue to be able to operate in Canada.
0: So when you mentioned the first Canadian city, was that the first city abroad? Yes, it was. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, and Lyft still only operates in, in the US and Canada at, uh, at the moment. So, right. Um, but yeah. So, so, so when I got hired, it was just a support associate answering phones and emails from riders and drivers, trying to resolve their issues. If anywhere from, you know, a driver got into an accident on the more serious side to, I didn't get my $5 credit, give me free money. And I just say sure. Here, here's some, here's some credit, you know, and and move on. But I, I was able to incorporate some of my Spanish skills because there was only me and one other person on the team at the time that had had the had the skills in Spanish to be able to answer emails and phone calls in, in Spanish. And so we didn't get too many messages. I'd say about eighty emails a week um, in Spanish. But you know, it was pretty much me and this one other person that were handling all of that. So I I've always tried to find ways to use. The skills and, and my passion, which is which is really Spanish language, to try and apply that to whatever the role I was I was currently in.
0: Okay, and how did that lead to localization?
1: <sighs> okay, um, so after spending a year on support um, answering Spanish emails, uh, there I was approached by someone on the operations team to help manage markets. Basically, this person wanted to move to another team, but they needed to find a replacement. And so they were managing Chicago, Miami, Atlanta. And again, this is very early at Lyft. When I joined as an employee, I was probably employee like 250, mm-hmm. maybe between 200, 250. So it was still pretty early considering the company's you know, thousands of, of people now. Um, so when I was on support, someone approached me, um, to join operations to manage these, uh, these markets remotely and, Seeing that it was Miami, again, that's another opportunity to use Spanish language skills, considering it's a heavily Spanish-speaking market. So, moved on to operations uh, for a year, m- helped manage those markets, grow those markets in terms of rides, um, get more drivers on the road, more people taking rides. And so, after about a year of that, um, I got pulled onto the competitive intelligence team because not only was I a, a Lyft driver, I was also an Uber driver. So people would ask me hey what's what's going on with with uber what are they doing with this what uh promotion what coupon are they dropping and so eventually i was i was pulled onto the onto that team to be able to grow a network to collect competitive intelligence and do analysis and pass it along to the team that was uh looking for for insight into different uh parts of the, of the competitive platform, which, you know, at the time being only in the U.S. was just Uber.
0: Were you driving Uber while you were an employee of Lyft? I was. Oh, really?
1: Both. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, there was nothing against it and it was really valuable. Um, You know, I don't, I don't mind saying it now, now that I'm, I'm, I'm done with it, but, you know, at, at the time there was nothing against it. So I I was able to gather some some valuable information um from from being a a, a driver for both um
0: so how, how was it like you know like like driving for the competition like did you feel like they do a lot of things differently better worse
1: honestly and I'll 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 say it uh with love for Lyft in my heart I will always be part of the Lyft family uh, even though I don't work there anymore, Uber did have a lot of parts of their app and product and experience that were superior and I just think that I think that came from being around longer um even though Lyft was first to do peer to peer so actual people driving their own cars picking people up um Uber did have f- three years on them uh in terms of app development and platform development because they had the professional drivers like the black car drivers um and then once once Lyft came on the scene um they launched UberX and that was the the direct competitor so you know um I, I think there was a lot of things that Uber was better at but i think that's why they asked me to join their the competitive team to find out what those things are pass them along so so we can learn from them um and and, and Lyft could do it better so yeah no it was it was an interesting experience uh and then uh, of course uh talking to writers as well uh, about you know why, why do you choose Uber like why why do you why do you choose Uber instead of Lyft and gathering that information and then sending it back to uh, you know the consumer insights team stuff like that. So yeah it was it was a valuable a valuable way uh, for, uh, for me to contribute to the, the team that I was on at the time
0: When we had our intro call we, we talked about one of the topics that we wanted to talk about was data and how to utilize data. So so what you were doing at that time was basically bringing the data right about competition. So I'm wondering, did you see any action taking on the data that you brought in? Like what was better about Uber versus Lyft? Or was it like a black hole, which sometimes the users feel like that, like when they submit a feedback that it never gets done?
1: Yeah, definitely not a black hole. Um, I think from an external perspective, it may feel like that, but uh, I think the the feedback and pieces of information and intelligence that I was able to to gather were definitely taken into consideration. Now, were all of them implemented? No, um, because there's certainly amount of uh, prioritization that happens, and the idea that Lyft wants to do their own thing they want to they want to forge their own trail and, and that's fine. I'm totally fine with that because at the end of the day, it was up to me to provide the information. It wasn't up to me to actually build the product itself. Um, but I will say one, um, one thing that was very actionable and that I was able to have direct influence was collecting driver incentives. So part of my role on competitive intelligence was to build a network locally. So not just in San Francisco, but across all cities that that Lyft and Uber operated to collect driver incentives. So, for example, uh, in Chicago, there might be if a driver gives 20 rides, they get a $25 bonus, something like that. Mm-hmm. So, collecting that information from as many sources as possible synthesizing that data into saying, okay, we had 10 drivers that got this offer and 10 drivers that got that offer and then passing that along to – the local team or the people that are making the decisions on what incentives Lyft is going to offer, knowing what the competition is doing, we can match or beat that um, depending on whether or not we need more drivers out there. So that was, that was something that was uh, I brought to the table and was absolutely able to take action on even so much as down to the specific hour, like knowing which hours incentives were available and then, having uh, having Lyft offer a similar or greater incentive if, if we decided that's the strategy we wanted to use um, at, at the time. So um, I, I'd say that was definitely a, a way that uh, some competitive data we collected and then implementing it almost immediately.
0: Okay, so there you are driving for the competition, <laughs> giving the information to Lyft. Is the next step localization?
1: In an indirect sense... Yes. Um, While I I was working on on the competitive team, almost the entire time I had spent at at Lyft, I had been advocating for a Spanish language experience. Ever since I was on support, uh, people would a lot of times write in because they didn't understand what the experience was. Um, Now, there's a lot of other languages I think would have been helpful, but my strong suit is Spanish and in the United States – Spanish is the is the second most uh, spoken language besides.
0: When you mentioned that, that the people didn't understand the experience, are you talking about like new customers or maybe the drivers or...
1: I'm mainly talking about drivers because if you think about it, um, uh, from a passenger or rider perspective, you open up the Lyft app, you put where you're going, you press a button, someone comes and picks you up and you really are only interacting with the app for a few minutes. Um, on the driver's side... Sometimes they're driving for eight, ten, twelve hours at a time, so it's a much more in depth experience for a longer period of time that the driver is having with the app than the rider so that's why I think there was more emphasis on on the driver experience so yeah, there was a lot of times drivers wouldn't understand like I mentioned with incentives you know like a bonus or something, they'd get an email, it'd be in English, and they wouldn't understand it because they didn't understand english as as uh as much as as they did um say Spanish. So almost the entire time I'd been advocating for getting a Spanish language experience. And there were uh it was a long process of talking to the right people. And because I started the company so early, I was I was able to interact with people that were pretty high up, like directors and VPs and even the even the co founders. Um I got a, a good chance to interact with them. There was a uh there was like a Shark Tank type Event that we had where we each uh, like there was teams that pitched ideas and the the idea that I pitched uh, was Lift Latino and uh, this was about six to eight months before we actually launched a Spanish language experience but that's what I pitched and and we won our team won because the the executives realized that it was absolutely something that that needed to happen um, in order to facilitate growth at the company so yeah it was just. Uh, I would say for about five to six months, I was doing double work. Uh, because once they decided to localize the app into Spanish, there was a huge effort that got kicked off that it touched almost every team at the company. Um, and, and I think that's, that's not really a secret. Um, you know, if you're going to go from one language, the hardest part is going from one to two languages. Right. Then going from two to however many more is a lot easier. But the, the one to two was, what, well, was the really hard one. So while I was working on the competitive team on the side, I was doing extra work to help facilitate the creation of the localized experience in in, uh, in Spanish for Lyft. So when the time came to permanently put people on that team to maintain it, um, that's when several people in the room when they were deciding said, "Hey, this guy's been doing it for the last six months. Let's let's give him a shot." Um, and yeah, that's how I found myself. Finally, officially on the localization team. Finally, I know after after four years, it would it had been I had been at the company for for a little over four years um, when I finally was able to work um, officially in in localization. And so, yeah, I joined as a project manager. So we had a program manager and a Spanish language manager at the time in the beginning. Um, and yeah, so it was really up to me to to manage more internal stakeholders. And, um, not so much with the vendors, uh, translation vendors or TMS vendors, uh, to start, but, but definitely if someone needed something translated, or they had questions about translation, I was really the the person that they would go to, to help answer their questions when I, when I first joined the, the localization team.
0: Yes. I was so excited that we finally reached a localization point in your career, but I still want to go actually back because I have some questions here. You know when you were talking about like the the Spanish speaking users that they didn't understand the app mm-hmm. did you have any data at that point like or did Lyft have data about like how many people could be Spanish speaking
1: Yeah so it was it was pretty easy for us to tell um just based on device language um that's how that's how we could uh, we could tell whether or not the the person um would probably prefer Spanish um, and, and you know it's it, it's interesting because I, I think there's a little bit of a misconception about someone that maybe can can speak English pretty well um, that they can understand written English without without any issues and so you know reading and and, and comprehension is much different than than speaking so uh, we felt that if if someone's uh, phone was in Spanish, then they probably would have preferred uh, that Spanish experience. Um, so it was pretty easy for us to pull pull data because um, we were already collecting a decent amount of data from the the riders and the drivers' phones. So we already knew what the percentage of uh, of users that were uh, that were using Lyft in English with a Spanish device.
0: Mm-hmm. You mentioned that for you it was like a personal thing because you were so good with Spanish but where the Spanish speakers like on top of the list of using different language than English. Yes. In your data, right?
1: Yep. And I would, I would say it definitely varied by market. Um Different markets had uh, different uh, languages that were third or fourth or fifth. Mm-hmm. So uh, yeah, the, the vast majority of of, uh, of markets in the U S had Spanish as their second language behind English. But then you look at uh, a city like Boston, um, where there's a very large Portuguese-speaking population. That definitely popped up. Then you look at New York, you've got Chinese and Russian that had very significant uh, portions of users that, that had their, their device in those languages. Um, so uh, Spanish was by far number two behind English, but there were certainly some other languages behind Spanish that uh, that had some significant percentage points of of riders and drivers
0: if we can by any chance go back to the shark tank moment where you were pitching the the idea basically the inception of localization at lyft right yes how did you convince them especially the managers because like, yeah, you can say that, yeah, I understand Spanish, maybe my friends and drivers, they're Spanish, and it would be nice if they understood the app in the language. But then the people with with the money or the managers, they can say like, okay, so what they're, they're already driving with us? Like, how do you justify this? I would say sort of a big decision.
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um So there were a handful of data points and they were very rough because, you know, in a Shark Tank situation, it was almost like, a, I don't want to call it a hackathon because there was no coding involved, but it was very much get people in a room for a few hours and then come up with something. So I, I don't think we we weren't expected to have, you know, really specific uh, pieces of data uh, to go on. It was uh, it was more generalized. So we looked at uh, the competition, I think, was number one. Uber at the time was localized into 25, 30 languages. And it was very much, uh, preferred among non-English speakers because of the fact they offered a localized experience. So I think that was number one. Number two, I looked at pure population numbers, uh, in the United States. Uh, there was, at the, at the time, there were 40 million, um, 40 plus million Spanish speakers, uh, in the United States, which makes it the second largest Spanish speaking country in the world, um, behind Mexico. You know, Mexico's number one and then there's more Spanish speakers in the United States than there are in Spain which is kind of crazy um,
0: she too heavy.
1: <laughs> I know right um, and there was uh, there was another data point too looking at um, smartphone usage uh, among uh, hispanic the Hispanic population versus other other ethnic demographics which actually skewed higher um, so that that was another piece that we brought in that uh, you're more likely to be using a smartphone more frequently if you are uh, of Hispanic descent. Um, also, we looked at purchasing power. I mean, these were like Pew Research Public type research numbers that we were pulling in. Uh, we looked at purchasing power, and we looked at the growth of the of the Hispanic population in the U.S. And These were all data points that we we came up with to to pitch to the executives, um, and it was it was a powerhouse. I mean, the panel was the CMO. The CEO, the COO, the creative director. I mean, that's who was judging us. Um, and so it was really, it was really a great opportunity to be able to be in in front of those people and to have an audience. And then when we won, you know, I, I got a chance to have a 15 minute conversation about it with the, with the, with the CEO of the company and the, and the president. There's, there's a lot of co-founders at Lyft, but the two that are still there, um, John and Logan, Um, You know, being able to have a conversation with them for 10 to 15 minutes about this and then to get to know me, it was, you know, definitely one of the the high points of my career.
0: What I'm thinking right now is, you know, you mentioned what was interesting and surprising to me was that you mentioned that at that time, Uber was already localized into 20 or 25 languages you mentioned.
1: I don't know the exact number, but they, I mean, they went international in 2011. I mean, they were, they were already, uh, Paris, I think was their, their first international market. So they I mean before Lyft even launched they were already international I see they had a huge head start on their uh, translation and localization program and I think as far as brand awareness you know Lyft has definitely come around but when you have people that uh, you know maybe are, are immigrants or they're not they're not as aware of of other, um, of other ride shares in the in the US um, they're going to go if something's in their language they're going to go with that and and for a lot of a lot of languages that was uber um so i think uber has 40 languages now at least on their website um so uh, i think at the time it was it was it was uh quite a few a lot more than lyft that's for sure
0: Did, did you or the company feel like the lack of localization is let's say hindering the growth of the company like it could be the key or was it more like making it a better experience for the people who are already using it
1: well, I always felt that it was a growth lever. Absolutely. I, 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 I firmly believe and continue to believe that having an experience that is able, to, that is, is able to be in that person's language is going to be, it's going to be sticky. They're going to keep coming back and it's going to get new people to join. Convincing other people of that, not so easy. Um, I think, I think, I think people did see it as something that was a nice to have. Um maybe a little bit more than a nice to have just uh i don't know it's 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 hard to explain. I think some people yes th- they saw it as a growth lever the way I did, and other people were like, Yes, but not to the extent that would be worth really moving forward and in localizing into all of these languages. I think some people conflate international internationalization with localization and Whenever I started talking to a certain uh, group of people, sometimes it would never be, well, we're not going international. Why are we doing other languages? And, you know, I needed to remind them that we're in the United States. There's a significant population of people that speak other languages, millions of people. Um, And so, you know, I could go... uh, There's a long list of of data points that uh, I tried to put together or that I did put together to try and convince people to to do quite a few languages, even putting dollars amount, you know, dollar amounts of, uh, on it. But at the end of the day, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't enough for them to prioritize it the way that I would have liked.
0: How do you go from bartending and driving a car to presenting data points? Is it something that you like, Picked up, or how did you? I don't know. Get to that point where you knew, like, you need data to prove a point or to convince someone.
1: That is definitely something I picked up. I had, you know, I had never worked in in tech uh, before. I worked at Lyft. I had worked at uh, I'd worked at a, an office as an office manager um, at a roofing company um, before I, I went to to college to to finish my degree in Spanish. So I had I had some experience working in an office but as far as as data and convincing people um i had to pick that up that was definitely something that i learned almost completely at lyft um one thing that i, I thought was was really funny in the very beginning you know i joined and i was like oh my god like I, I'm i'm working at this company it's growing really fast it's pretty amazing like you know, everyone must know how to do everything and everyone must be just geniuses right. to be able to know. And the more I got to know people and the more I I, I started to understand, not to say everyone I worked with, um, for the most part, super smart, super talented. But I came to the realization of like, they are still f- also trying to figure it out. <laughs> like, I- I'm trying to figure out some things. They're trying to figure out what they're doing. And because they're, you know, Great at what they do, they figure it out, but at the same time, they don't always have all the answers and so I, once I, I I figured that out, I think I felt okay with not knowing things, asking the questions, building the relationships with people, and then learning from them and asking them for for guidance, and not feeling bad that uh that I didn't know something so yeah uh as far as uh as far as that uh learning how to convince people and and that data is what drives decisions. That is definitely something that I had to learn on the fly. A little.
0: You know, you talk about learning and adjusting to things. So how did you learn localization? Because, you know, another thing that was surprising to me was that you were the guy who, let's say, pitched the idea. And let's say you convinced you and your team convinced the company to start exploring localization. But then you told me that there were like other like program managers or somebody else. I thought that you were actually the one who was starting the whole thing. So they brought in some people with experience and then you joined the team and
1: yes, yes. Uh so I I had been at the company a lot longer than than other people. So I I think people knew me as someone who wanted to advocate for localization. Um but I have to credit um the the program manager who came in, who had a lot of experience. His name is Brian McConnell. Um, Really, really great guy. Really knowledgeable. Really knows his stuff about localization. And I credit where I am today because of the knowledge that he gave me. Um, So even though I was the one that pitched uh, that Shark Tank about having a localized experience, he was the one that did most of the work in the beginning to set it up. Uh, hire uh, a TMS, build that relationship, work with engineering to connect our code base to the TMS. Like I could not, I didn't know how to do things like that. And he did. And he taught me, Um you know, even though that wasn't necessarily his, his, his role, his role was to, to build localization. But, you know, I, I, Forced my way in. I I continued to ask him and and hound him, and he was super nice about it and and really uh, gave me the guidance that I needed to understand localization enough to be able to to join the team. Um, It was actually really funny going back to the Shark Tank. One thing I want to mention: uh, one of the people was the it was the VP of of RideShare or the the VP. It was one of the VPs of engineering uh, was on that panel with the with the COO and the CEO and. As I'm going through the presentation, you know, at the end, I'm like, okay, translate the app, and then do marketing, and then launch uh, Spanish experience. And and in the in the question and answer, he's like, well, do you think it'll be difficult to to translate the app? Do you think you'll need engineering resources? And I was like, nah, probably not that much. I think it'll be fine. We can get like a vendor, and like there's a company we can just hire to do that. And he like he didn't challenge me on it. He was just like, "Oh, okay." <laughs> and and I appreciate him not doing that. And you know, after going through the process and understanding the huge amount of effort that needed from the engineering standpoint, that I had no idea. You know, me being naive at the time, I I just it was it's a funny thing for me to look back on to to know that I had to to, to understand I had no idea what it actually took. Um, but he was, he was very nice about it. And at the same time, it wasn't a, it wasn't an engineering event. It was a, more of an operation idea type event. So I think it was, uh, it was just, it was very nice of him not to, to challenge me on it. So anyways, just, just a fun, a fun memory from that experience.
0: Did the localization effort start without you? Like, did they first hire the experienced people and then you joined the team or were you part of the team from the start?
1: They hired other people um, before I, I officially joined the team. Like I mentioned before, I was doing kind of double work, um, so I was unofficially working on the on the localization effort. Um, so yeah, I was I was not technically I was not the first person to to be on on the localization team. Um, I joined close to when uh, a lot of the work was finished and they were preparing for launch. Was when I officially joined the team. But I had been working with them in an unofficial capacity for about six months before that.
0: When you joined the team, w- what was the state of localization at the time?
1: Like when I officially joined the team, mm-hmm. it was it was almost done. Um, the translation pipeline had been built and was being tested. Um, most of the content across uh, web and app uh, had been had been translated into Spanish. Um, so there was a lot of testing going on. Um, we were probably two to three months out from launch when I officially joined the team. Um, so, uh, a lot of the, a lot of the work that I had done unofficially was to kind of create workflows, uh, and, and visualize workflows on how things were going to work. Um, so then when I, when I joined the team, it was up to me to, to take those workflows that I had created and then implement them and in, in, in maintain them. And, you know, just very simple of like uh, an engineer uh, checks in a new string. That string is then imported to the TMS. Then in the TMS, uh, vendor number one does the translation. Vendor number one does the editing. Vendor number two does the review. Then once the review, it moves to published. Then the translation pipeline pulls it back into the code base and it gets stored uh, in a repository, and then when someone opens up the app with their phone in Spanish, they see the Spanish string instead of the English string. You know, creating and and visualizing those workflows, not actually doing the engineering work, but just showing how it works to other people at the company, so that when they want to know how localization works, they have a, a visual guide to be able to do that. So, so that was a lot of the a lot of the work that I was doing before I joined, and when I actually joined, I took that. And then and then ran with it and and continued to show that to other people at the company um, so that they could understand how how we were going to run things.
0: You mentioned that you started as a project manager, right?
1: Yes, yeah. So I I, I joined uh, the team as a project manager working under Brian um, as the program manager, and then he uh, th- there was also another Spanish language manager at the time um, that uh, that was overseeing the the linguistic quality and working closely with vendors to make sure that uh, the translations were right, as well as maintaining glossary terms, um, editing glossary terms, um, and really finding our, our uh, voice in Spanish um, and making sure that was, uh, that was complete and, and consistent.
0: Uh, did you know anything about project management or was it another thing that you had to pick up on your own?
1: So, I had done a lot of it on the competitive team. Um, even though my, my, uh, my, I think my title was, God, I had this really cryptic title. Um, I was like, uh, strategy analyst or something or strategic something, um, local insights strategy specialist or, but I mean, I, I was I was a a, a program and, and project manager basically. I had the local competitive insights program that I was managing, and because I was the only person at the time, I was I was the the program and the project manager. So so I, I took that experience from from the competitive team and was able to to uh, shift that over to, to localization.
0: So you mentioned, if I'm not mistaken, that uh, you joined two months before the launch, right? Just about Yeah. So, to me, this is like, like a like a big thing, I would imagine. So so what was like the atmosphere or the expectations from the company and from the team like before the launch? And how did the launch go? And, and what did you or Yes, okay, let's start with those questions before I <laughs> dump all the ideas on you.
1: Yeah, I, I think, um... Based on the way we we set up a test, like, like a holdout group, uh, we were going to launch to a, a, a percentage of, of of Spanish users and hold out as percentage to be able to see if there was if there was a difference. Right. Like any test, to be able to see if it was actually driving incrementality, were were riders taking more rides, were new users signing up more frequently. Were drivers driving more often? Were they earning more? Were they getting higher ratings? And the answer was was yes on all of those. Um, you know, I can't share sp- specific numbers, but statistically significant numbers in several of those categories um, that, uh, that we saw a, a positive lift, um, pardon the pun, in, in actual um, – in the data. Um, and so – that was the expectation was that if we were going to if we were going to spend the money and maintain a a localized uh experience, we should be able to see some level of, of incrementality from our rider and driver population and and new user acquisition as well. Um so yeah, I, I think I think some of the key metrics that we saw increases were um drivers were getting higher ratings, they were driving more frequently um, new users were activating. So that's, that's actually taking a ride. Um, they were activating at a higher rate than the holdout. Um, drivers were making more money, um, because, because they were driving more. Um, so, so those were really some of the key metrics that we saw, uh, when we launched a new language, what was even better is because I had that, that data from Spanish when I w- wanted to advocate for other languages farther down the line um i was able to use you know those numbers as a proxy to say okay here's the population of spanish drivers we saw this lift now if we did this for portuguese we'd expect to see the same lift here's the dollar numbers that it means if we if we launch this language so it was really important for for us to get that data in the very beginning to be able to have that in our pocket when we wanted to launch other languages
0: did you also try to collect qualitative data, like surveys from the users, how they feel about it, or was it mostly quant?
1: It was mostly quant, um, mainly due to resourcing, uh, I would have loved to have collected some, some qualitative data. Um, but the, the, the consumer insights team, I think, wasn't really equipped or, or it wasn't a priority for them to collect qualitative data around the experience. Um, So we really did have to rely on on quantitative data there.
0: You know, what what I I like when you mentioned that when you launched, you already had the sort of plan of what kind of metrics you want to see impact on through the localization. Once you started, like once the localization program started to be more mature, did you add some more metrics into it? Or did you like handpick certain metrics? Among all those data, you know, like you can collect a lot of data, but like for the localization program, what was what was the important data?
1: I think we mainly stuck with the ones that we saw from the Spanish launch. Mm -hmm. Um, It was tough because the other languages that we ended up launching, like um, right now, Lyft is available in Spanish, uh, Brazilian, Portuguese and Canadian French. It was it was difficult to get a large enough audience in those languages to, to really get statistically significant data with Spanish, it was easy because there there were enough drivers and riders to be able to to gather that data over a certain period of time. So, for the other languages, at least in the United States, we just didn't have enough enough of a sample size to be able to to get a significant read on it. So, we really relied on the same metrics um, uh, for those for those languages. Um, and and just uh as opposed to coming up with new ones. So yeah, I, I, I there was other um I, I tried to do some other comparisons as as well. For example, I got my hands on a competitive data set around different devices that have um uh we looked at keyboard language on Android devices primary, secondary, tertiary, keyboard languages. And then we could also see... Um, it was all anonymized, like what apps they had installed. So, um, you know, and there's a lot of companies out there that do app, like app data analysis. Um, so we looked at who has the Uber app and the Lyft app and the Uber driver versus Lyft driver by, by market and, you know, seeing what percentage of people based on keyboard language and you could see like... There was a lot of under-indexing of, of Lyft versus Uber in a lot of markets, um, even even for Spanish. Um, so I think that was one thing I tried to, because you know as soon as we launched Spanish, I wanted to launch a bunch of other languages. Um, so you know I, I tried to tried to make the case for that. Then looking at running Spanish language uh, ads, seeing if we, on, on Facebook, um, seeing if we could get. Uh, uh, Spanish users to activate at a higher rate or at a cheaper um, uh, cheaper acquisition cost. Um, you know, I, I can't really go into details on on numbers on that, but uh, it was a fairly successful test, um, and so that was you know another piece of, of data there, um, and you know something close to home for you at least in Vancouver, uh, trying to make the case for for Chinese. You know, there's a very large Chinese population in Vancouver. Um, and, and trying to show that, uh, not only would we be behind, uh, Uber if, you know, cause they basically launched at the same time. Um, but there would be a significant, uh, lift in, in revenue. Um, if we did launch with Chinese ended up not moving forward with it, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, those were the kinds of cases that we tried to build, uh, as we, as we tried to push localization forward.
0: Mm-hmm. that's a good point that you mentioned that you were then testing the the localized ads so what was the the initial scope for the launch was it just the app
1: uh app and website so the website uh there's a a content management system a third-party content management system that integrated with the translation management system that made the website pretty easy to to localize and then the app uh was uh you know using an an uh, a REST API with the, with the TMS to hook up to to GitHub.
0: So when we're talking about the data and the matrix, you mentioned to me it was mostly like a business matrix, like the the data that you would present to outsiders. But what were the data that you were tracking inside as the team? Like when it comes to, for example, performance of the vendors or like the translation turnaround time, the quality. Maybe we can talk a little bit about those kind of data,
1: yeah, um you know when we had a a Spanish language manager um it was he was he, he was the the final say for quality. He was doing the review, he was reviewing all of the Spanish translation, so it would go to the vendor, it' get translated it, it would get edited if needed, and then he'd be the the review um so it was very easy to track quality um, because it was a, a person doing it. Eventually, there was a, a shift in priorities, unfortunately, and they shifted the team to be just one person, just me. Um, and, uh, and that's when I moved from, from project to program manager and, and ran the whole thing. But uh, you know, we relied very heavily on our vendors to, to manage the quality themselves. Um, there was an internal ticketing system um, where if someone saw an error, they would be able to, to report it. Um, and uh, if it was a localization error, there was a specific project in, in Jira, uh, the Jira ticket would, would come to me and I'd be able to, uh, be able to handle it. There was a handful of, uh, of people using the Lyft beta app that if they, if they saw something, they'd, uh, they'd be able to flag an issue pretty easily. So, um, overall, I think there could have been more attention paid to quality, but because of resourcing, there just wasn't uh, it just wasn't there to have it be as good as it could be. It was fine. I mean, you know that we were able to catch a significant amount of errors, but we really did rely heavily on the vendor for for quality assurance. And we worked with some some really great vendors. Um, I was really thankful to have you know I'll, I'll name drop them because I love them so much. Mother Tongue. I don't know if you've heard of them before. Um, they're part of a they're, they're part of a larger group called Omnicom, which is a big. You know, marketing conglomerate. but but Mother Tongue was was really really great um, in in uh, in their translation transcreation. They really they they took the time to understand the lift voice and really went deep. In fact, um, so much so because we we came up with this program where we actually brought the translators on site, and this is probably probably the thing that I'm maybe the most proud of in terms of the, the localization experience and program. Um We actually were able to get approval from Lyft to bring the translators on site. And I mean, we brought them from around the world, um, from, from Brazil, from Montreal, from Mexico city. Um, they, they came to, um, uh, Lift headquarters spent several days with me and the rest of the team in the very beginning and were able to get their questions answered and also just kind of integrate into the lift culture and for them to see how the company operated. I gave them a tour of the office. We, we had, uh, lift ha- at the time had cars that you could take out and do like practice lift rides if you wanted to actually go out and and do rides in in a car so you know we pretended i was driving they would sit in the passenger seat they would pretend to be the driver another person another linguist in the back seat would pretend to be the passenger they'd switch so they'd be able to see how the app actually functioned in english and it wasn't you know it was tough like especially being not in the u.s there was no way for them to see how it actually worked unless they had been to the u.s and, and taken taken rides so giving them a chance to come and talk to us directly and ask questions and, and get the experience of what it means to be a driver and a rider that really, really helped us in terms of setting them up for success with quality down the line. Um, So that was definitely something that I I recommend. It wasn't, wasn't cheap, you know um, but I absolutely think it was, it was totally worth it. Um, And I even came up with some metrics on, you know, Based on the cost of travel and how much time it would be, uh, you know, and I, I really broke it down. I said, "Look, it's going to cost them. It's going to cost us this much to bring him here. If we see this amount of incrementality from improved translations, it's going to be worth it." And it was something ridiculously small. It was like a fraction of a percent because of the scale that Lyft was operating at. All we needed to do was have this this amount of incrementality to make it worth it. Um, and that inevitably, and that that uh, absolutely got us the approval to uh, to bring them on site. So that was just a really great experience in general, and that and that built the relationships with those linguists directly because you don't see that a lot. Actually, you don't see uh, translation uh, vendors letting clients have direct access to translators. That's that's usually something where they separate. Mother tongue was was amazing in the fact that they let us have that direct contact. They came on site and we brought Mother Tongue, our project managers on site too. Um, and so they were able to really embed uh, with us at the company at Lyft and uh, and just really understand what we wanted to do and, and how we wanted to do it. So yeah, that was a very long-winded answer for how we dealt with quality. We set We set them up in the very beginning with the tools that they needed and built the relationships from the very beginning so that there were fewer quality issues down the line.
0: I I may be mistaking here, but um, going to where you are right now at Netflix, I think Netflix is one of the teams that still has uh, some in-house linguists, right? I don't know if it's for all languages or maybe just for some languages.
1: I don't think there's in-house linguists. Oh, Okay. I I think so. there's, There's a team of language managers that have different regions or different locales that they oversee. Um, that are, um, a lot of them are speakers of of that, of that language. Um, I would say there's not, there's not a language manager for every single language. Um, some of the language managers oversee multiple regions, you know, in, in Europe or in APAC. Um, so there is quite a large vendor pool that, that Netflix does pull from, um, but the uh, the language management team is is pretty large as well. Um, but uh, no, I, I don't think there's there's in-house linguists that uh, that are being used.
0: The reason why I asked this is I was thinking that if we can compare like what you did for Lyft, you know, bringing the people on board with Netflix, and I thought like maybe we don't need to do it because like Netflix already does it. But okay, I guess I was wrong. But the thing is, like you mentioned that. For Lyft, like the people in outside of the countries, they couldn't use Lyft app, but for Netflix, they can use it. So, do you think, like, let's say in Netflix, at Netflix, it would still be beneficial for people to spend some time with the team and to absorb the culture, or you think like Netflix is such a global phenomenon that people already know like what Netflix is and how Netflix communicates?
1: I think it's the latter. I, you know, I, I don't. I don't want to say that. It wouldn't be beneficial because I think any relationship building at all, um, just in my in, in my career and in general, that's definitely a, a piece of advice I would give people is build the relationships with, with people and that's what's going to lead to success. So sure, I think there would be some benefits um, for bringing linguists on site and meeting the actual engineers that they're translating strings for. Would it be as beneficial? No, I don't think so, because Netflix is so accessible globally um, that it's it's very easy to get the same experience on your computer anywhere than it is if you're if you're in a specific location. So um, I don't think it would be nearly as beneficial to to a service like like Netflix that it was for Lyft.
0: I'm curious about the relationship that you mentioned. I would assume that in your experience you had some underperformers. How do you handle that relationship when you see that the people really don't cut it for you?
1: Underperformers from a translation quality standpoint?
0: Or project managers or
1: Um well I, I don't really have an experience. Like that at Netflix yet? I'm am still very new. You know, I'll, I'll definitely say that I'm coming up on on three months at Netflix and at Lyft. Didn't really see a lot of underperforming from our internal team at all. Um, you know, the only reason why the team was was downsized was due to priorities. Certainly had nothing to do with performance. Um, we were all um, pretty amazing at what we did. As far as far as uh, linguistic quality and, and vendor quality there was a time where we had some difficulty with um spanish language translation quality f- from a vendor and we ended up having to having to move on um from them um and that was a, a difficult conversation i think i think we gave them you know a decent amount of feedback and a chance to improve, and, and we just weren't seeing it, um, and we ended up having to having to switch content over. And, and I think that's that's a good lesson for don't put all your eggs in one basket. Definitely have multiple vendors uh, in your program so that if you have an issue with one, and you know I, this isn't anything against that vendor. Uh, you know I, they're they're a pretty large vendor. Uh, they have a lot of clients. You know I, I think it was more just. An unfortunate situation. Um, so I, you know, I don't hold any any grudge or any ill will towards them, but it just wasn't working out for us, and, and we ended up having to move on. So you know, it's it's not an easy conversation to have, but uh, it is important to to read the signs, read the signals, and if you need to make a switch, make a switch. Um, there's a lot of quality uh, translation vendors out there, and if one's not working for you, there's there's probably another one that will.
0: Was it the decision of the language manager that you mentioned because you said that he was doing all the reviews, so was it was it feedback from him, input from him or data from him, or was it from some other vendors?
1: It was mostly from our internal language manager at the time. Um, it was ultimately the program manager who made the decision and had that conversation, um, but it was all of us together when we when we ha- uh, finally cut the cut the cord, but yes, it was our internal Spanish language manager who had been reporting feedback, r- recording specific instances of, of, uh, of uh, lower quality. Um, and that was, that was ultimately why we decided to move to a, a different vendor.
0: Okay, so let me get this right. So you were part of a team and then suddenly it was just you. <laughs> was, it, was it really like a sudden, sudden thing or was it planned? Or
1: No, it was very sudden. It was very, very sudden. It was almost overnight pretty much. Um, In my opinion, it was not executed very well. Uh, I think there could have been better communication, but uh, that was the decision that was made at the company. Um, It was very bittersweet for me because, you know, the people that I, well, the people that I had been working with for the last year plus were suddenly gone. And uh, I was moved into a role that was, I was promoted into a role to, to run the whole thing. So, you know, it was a it was a step forward for me, but the, the people that I, I owed a lot of my success to were not there, um, and it was very sad. It was I was not happy about it. Um, again, I think bittersweet is probably the best way to put it. Mm-hmm. But you know, removing emotion from it and understanding that it's a business and this is the business decision. Um, that it was not a personal decision, um, I think that helped, but uh, it was it was very sudden uh, to answer your question. Um, yeah, it happened it happened really fast.
0: Final note, here's something new that I haven't done before. Thank you for listening to my interview with Zach and all the insight that he shared with us and his personal journey. Please remember that this is just part one with Zachary and the second part of our interview will be shared with you in two weeks exactly. So stay tuned and we will be back. Bye bye.